You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I've gotten a few questions for people have asked me. What I think Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein were up to. And I realize Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein are several dozen douchey, awful, harassy, shitty, rapey guys ago that we've had a lot more come tumbling out of the shitty, douchey, harassy, rapey guy closet in the last couple of weeks. And Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein feel like they happened 10 years ago, but people have asked me, like, what was up with them? What did I think was up with them? What was their kink? What was their fetish besides or in addition to harassing women? Besides and in addition to getting off on the power, like, what was up with that? Harvey Weinstein whipping it out or letting his robe fall open or just suddenly masturbating in front of women or turning and masturbating in front of houseplants and, and horrifying women and, and, and behaving in ways that – repulsed women. And same thing with Louis C.K. engaged in some very similar behaviors. Louis C.K. didn't rape anyone, as Harvey Weinstein has been accused of doing, but he put women in terribly uncomfortable positions where they felt vulnerable and violated, where their careers were derailed, where they withdrew from comedy, did real damage, but didn't apparently rape anyone, as Weinstein is alleged to have done. But what was up? What was up with the whipping out of the dicks? What was up with that not just the abuse of power, but what's the kink there? What were they getting off on? How could someone get hard in a circumstance like that? Whipping your dick out and showing it to someone and masturbating in front of someone who does not want to see your dick. And people would ask me what I think, what I thought was going on with them from a, from a kink perspective, from a digging into their erotic imagination, from an unpacking their erotic script place. What do I think was fucking going on? There is, of course, the abuse of power and sexual violence and all of that. And for some men, that's enough. But there seems to be something else at work, particularly in the case of Louis C.K., than just dominance and, 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 and violence and violation. And here's the thing. Here's what I think is going on for some of these guys, for guys who engage in this kind of behavior. And I hate to say this because I don't want to get into who's hot, who's not, who's conventionally attractive, who's unconventionally attractive. But take a look at Harvey Weinstein. Take a look at Louis C.K., Men who aren't particularly conventionally attractive, men who absent power and privilege and money and success and fame, probably not pulling in a lot, probably not on anybody's radar, not a lot of people's types. Men who may be very self-conscious about feeling homely or repulsive and not being able to attract women. And here's the thing about erotic imaginations. They often seize on our biggest fears and they turn them into kinks. Often, not always. We talk about this a lot on the show. We talk about the gay guys out there who've eroticized the homophobic archetypes. Look at gay male erotic archetypes and you see a lot of Marines. You see a lot of truck drivers. You see a lot of cops. You see a lot of firemen. You see a lot of sailors. You see a lot of different types of guys who aren't particularly gay positive. You see guys from walks of life that aren't noted for rainbow flag waving behaviors. You see guys from walks of life were noted for anti-gay violence and yet they become erotic archetypes for gay men because we, many of us, not all of us will eroticize our fears. 
The other example frequently used is right on woke ass feminist women who will not take orders from men and should not take orders from men and voted for Hillary. And in the bedroom, women often, not all of them, but enough of them, many of them for it to be kind of a cliche and a trope, want to be called names, have their hair pulled, be thrown around, have their asses slapped, want to be called a slut, want to be called these things by someone that they choose to call them in a context where they're in control of when and for how long this goes on. But they have eroticized this fear, ravishment, rape, rape fantasies, very common among women. Fear of rape, 100% of women fear rape. Not all women have rape fantasies, but rape fantasies or ravishment fantasies, as some people prefer to call them, because in a rape fantasy, you're being taken by force by someone you wish to be taken by, which is not necessarily going to be experienced as rape. So perhaps that's a ravishment. That is really common. So you look at Louis C.K., you look at Harvey Weinstein, you look at these guys who are, by an objective standard, not conventionally attractive, or you could say, some might say subjectively homely or repulsive. Now, not all guys who are unconventionally attractive or subjectively repulsive are going to eroticize that. Some are, though, just like some gay men will eroticize these sort of violent homophobic types and archetypes, and some women will eroticize uh, their erotic imagination, will seize on the fear and turn it into the kink. It's a way of controlling it, compartmentalizing it, and seizing it, and minimizing it. And so you've got some guys out there who are turned on. That's how they could get that hard on in that moment where most of us wouldn't be able to get hard. And someone's recoiling from you in horror when you pull your dick out, your dick can get hard in a circumstance like that? Perhaps. Perhaps it could, yes, if your erotic imagination had seized on that fear, that fear of being laughed at, that fear of being repulsive, and transubstantiated that fear into your kink. That's how someone like Harvey Weinstein perhaps could do that sort of thing. Not just the exercise of power, also an element of it, and the violence, also an element of it, but the repulsiveness of it was part of the turn-on, part of the kink. And I think that was definitely the case with Louis C.K., that part of his kink, part of his turn-on, part of his erotic script was running toward that thing that he feared or initially feared and eroticized. It was being repulsive. It was women recoiling from him. So many of our kinks are fears that, that arouse us, to make our dicks hard, to make our pussies wet. Cuckolding, another example of a fear turned into a kink. So what do you do? What do you do with these guys? Well, as with any other kink... There is a way to indulge and explore. There is a way to access that consensually. Gay guys don't go out and intentionally get beat up by homophobic Marines. Gay guys maybe dress up as Marines. Gay Marines maybe will play that homophobic archetype in a consensual situation with a consenting adult partner where it, there is, it's negotiated. There's a beginning and an end. It's contained and controlled. Same thing with Women who have ravishment fantasies, that is something that you explore with a consenting partner and you discuss what's going to happen so that it happens in a way that everybody leaves the room feeling good and positive about it. If you have a kink where you want to whip it out, stroke yourself while someone recoils from you, that should be something like cockolding or anything else, any other fear transformed into a kink that you should find a way to indulge to have that in your life that's consensual find a way to do that with someone who would like to do that with you or do that for you sometimes we are indulged by someone in our kink someone who isn't into our kink necessarily but will go there with us 
for us. But that is in the context, always in the context of some sort of relationship, not just met you, invited you up to my hotel room to talk about comedy. That's not a relationship that that can happen suddenly in. Kinks don't happen suddenly. They have to be negotiated. And I'm sure there are other guys out there who have the same basic fundamental kink that CK seems to have and Weinstein seemed to have and aren't in trouble and aren't in the media and aren't losing their jobs and aren't being dragged on Twitter because they do it with consenting partners or they do it in contexts where it is permissible to whip your dick out and begin to jerk off like at a sex club, like at certain kinds of sex or swingers parties. There is a way to have the shit that you need to make your dick hard without blowing up your fucking life. And without traumatizing and harming others, more importantly, Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein weren't doing it the right way. And we should be cognizant of that. It should be a part of our sex education. Human sexuality is complicated, just like human society and culture and language and dinner and everything else is. And a sex education, a comprehensive sex education that was queer positive, that also talked about gender and talked about consent, also needs to talk about kink. Also needs to talk about variance. Also needs to talk about transgression. So that people who have these kinks can regard them not as problems and can experience them and their partners can experience them not as problems or traumas but as gifts. As things that are a part of their sex life that make it varied and interesting and arousing and complex and textured. As opposed to the self-destruct button that guys, too many people, slam their dicks down on until they've blown up their lives. And left a trail of victims in their wake. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Salvage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum subscription-only edition of the Savage Lovecast, Blaze Aguera Iacus is here to talk about facial recognition software, and he's here to debunk claims that there is facial recognition software out there that can identify your sexual orientation. That's on the magnum, and you can subscribe to the magnum at savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question about how to deal with having to see an abusive ex. Um, so I dated this guy over a year ago. Um, I guess we broke up a little bit over a year ago and I dated him for a little bit under a year and broke up with him because he was emotionally abusive. He was very manipulative and gaslighted me and basically told me that everything that I thought and said was a result of anxiety and my crazy way too big emotions. So basically just a fucking terrible experience. Um, I came out of it on the other side and I'm fine and don't really ever have to see him because we live in different cities. But the issue is that we work in the same industry and there's a huge conference every year and it's actually next week. So I probably should have called you sooner, but basically I know he's going to be there for a fact. And the thought of not just seeing him, but like having him be in the same building and room is me is just like brings on this huge anxiety and dread and I just don't know what to do about it. It feels so bad and it feels really familiar to the same anxiety and dread that I had when I was in this emotionally abusive relationship. And so I'd like to be able to just like go to this conference and like network and have fun and get to know people. But I know, I mean, I don't mean to be defeatist about it, but like just the thought of him even being in the same building as me kills me. And like, I just don't know what to do. So if you have any advice for like how to just like boost my confidence and be okay, like being in the same space as this person who was emotionally abusive, 
um, I would really appreciate it. Far be it for me to tell someone who's the victim of an emotionally abusive partner how to feel about having to share a building at a giant conference with that former emotionally abusive partner. Not that they're not still emotionally abusive, perhaps with their other partners, but they're no longer emotionally abusing you. And you say that just the thought of being in a giant building with many, many, many other people fills you with the same dread that the thought of being in the relationship again might fill you with. And that, if I may say, is not entirely rational. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, What you may fear by being in the same building is that he will have an opportunity, that it opens you up again to abuse. Of course, there's the anxiety of seeing this person again. I have exes in the world myself on great terms with most of them, not so great with one or two. And it would fill me with a little bit of anxiety if I was going to be in a place where I knew that they were going to be because what happens if I run into them? And I think if you're the victim of abuse, that what happens if you run into them, that you need to think about that because I think that's the source of the anxiety for someone who's been abused is it's an opportunity for this person to resume abusing me. It's an opportunity for this person to, even if it's just dirty fucking looks, it's an opportunity for this person to get in my head and under my skin again. I'm making myself available to this person in a way that I'm not available to them anymore through other platforms because I block them on social media because they don't have my new phone number because they don't know where I live now. And so I think what you need to lessen your anxiety going into this conference is a game plan and some allies who can run interference for you. Round up colleagues that you have who are also going to the same conference and just say to them, I was in an abusive relationship with X, with this person, and they're going to be there and I'm going to be there. And I just need some people that I can call on to be at my elbow if we're in the same room, just so there's someone I can turn to and talk to so I can not have my focus be drawn to or drawn by this person. And if this person should approach me, can literally run interference for me and help extricate me from that situation. And then if you're going in knowing that you have a plan, knowing that if this person is there and they attempt to approach you or get in your head or they're just in the room and you don't want your focus to be drawn by them, that you have people who are there who have said, yeah, rely on me. I'm happy to do that for you. I think you'll feel a lot less anxious because really what's the anxiety about? Anxiety is about opportunity, the opportunity for this person to abuse you again and some more. And you can greatly decrease the chance of that person seizing that opportunity by having friends there at your side running interference for you. Hey, Dan, I'm an early 30s dude. I've been seeing a girl for a number of months, and she's great, waka, 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 but she has not gone down on me once. I go down on her regularly, love it, daydream about it, want her junk in my face all the time. And I would like to date someone who feels the same way about me and my junk. Really early on, as we were getting to know each other, I asked her how she feels about giving oral sex. And she said she likes doing it when her partner is into it. But if she liked doing it, why has she never mentioned it since or gone for it? And isn't it a fair assumption that I most likely would be into it? So my question to you, sir, is do I say something or not? On the one hand, Part of me feels like if I have to say anything, then we're obviously mismatched with respect to this particular thing. No woman has ever had to ask me to go down on her. That comes standard, and I love doing it for me. So if this were something she actually enjoyed, then why would I ever have to solicit this from her? I have to imagine that because she's never initiated it or even tiptoed close to it, she's just not into it. 
But on the other hand, the good communicator in me wants to use my words and say, hey, is this something you're into? Not into? It's something I'm into. But I'm concerned that simply by asking the question, I may pressure her into doing something she's not super fond of. Obviously, if she hated giving blowjobs, then she wouldn't do it no matter what I ask her say, and she shouldn't. But on the margin, if she's just lukewarm about giving oral, then I'm afraid if I bring this up to her, Dan, I may end up with a pity BJ, which is super not sexy. It's not sexy to be made to feel like someone's humoring you or making an accommodation for you or just acquiescing in bed, right? I want my partner to want my junk in her face just as much as I want hers in mine. I do not want pity BJs. So do I say something, Dan? And if so, what do I say? Or do I take these months of no oral sex as clear indication that oral does not come standard on this model and that I should either return this model to the lot or accept that this is the price of admission I must pay to be with her? It seems to me that several months in and many uh, incidents of you eating her pussy in, that it's time to have a conversation with her about what's up with oral. And just as you don't want to get a blowjob that isn't sexy for that person to perform, I assume you're a good and decent guy who doesn't want to get a blowjob from someone who's traumatized by giving blowjobs. You need to have a conversation with this woman that invites her to open up to you, not just about why aren't you blowing me, but about oral sex in general and sexual histories in general. It's possible that she had a really unpleasant experience with oral sex. That sometimes is at the bottom of someone's aversion to sucking a dick. If that's the case, in past relationships, she may have been giving blowjobs because they were expected of her, because she felt that was the only way to keep the guy. And it was in a way, perhaps a very real way, re-traumatizing her each time. You may end up in a place that's not just a conversation about likes and dislikes, but a conversation about sexual histories and traumas in talking to her about this. That's my hunch here. Three months in, four months in, however long you've been dating this person, I think it's time to have that conversation. Just like three, four months in is a good time to lay your kink cards on the table. It's also a good time to lay your history cards on the table, a good time to lay your insecurity cards on the table. Maybe even if you really trust each other, a good time to lay your trauma cards on the table and have a big convo about how you fit together and how you work together and how you can make accommodations and allowances that create more comfort. Maybe that if she can open up to you about her aversion and you give her permission not to blow you and you enjoy eating her pussy for its own sake, not just because you expect a blowjob in reciprocation, that she may relax and come to trust you more than she's trusted other partners who she went down on and perhaps had an unpleasant experience with or perhaps she was violated more brutally in other ways by men in her past. Time to have that convo. I can't tell you what that answer is. Only she knows what the answer is. But something is indeed up. Said she liked oral if the person that she's with is into it. That may have been a kick the can down the road little white lie that allowed her to avoid having too early in the relationship a conversation that was more emotionally fraught and carried more weight than the relationship at the beginning could sustain, could hold up under. Now, this far in, we're hopefully you guys care about each other more. You're ready to have those convos. Go have that convo. You use so many savage love-isms in your call, and I really appreciate the attention to detail there. Now you need to rush in there and use your words. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old female calling. Uh, I have a question about my ex-boyfriend. 
so he and I broke up about two and a half months ago um, in an extraordinary fashion. It was a very, very ugly breakup. Uh, not that I wanted it to go that way, but, you know, shit happens. So ever since the breakup, including I just found out even still recently, he's been very openly lying to people about everything that happened. Whereas I, like a normal sane person, have just been explaining to people, you know, things didn't work out. We went our own way. That's best for both of us. He's going around telling people that I stole money from him, that I stole a computer and the dog that I bought, uh, when in reality... He owed me several thousands of dollars in unpaid rent. I had paid for everything on that apartment for our house. I gave him money for his student loans. I paid for the dog, which, by the way, is a very expensive dog because he has a ton of medical issues. Um, The computer was mine the whole time. Uh, The car, which he also claimed I stole, was also mine. It's in my name. I pay the taxes, the insurance, and the gas on it. I've, I've been pretty quiet about who I've told. I mean, I've told people who are closest to me, like my family and my closest friends, but apparently he's just telling everyone I've been finding from acquaintances of mine. Um, They've assured me that he's not very credible because he just sounds like a crazy person. And and even my sister was saying like, look, you don't need to worry about it. People are going to figure it out because his lies are so outrageous that they hardly make any sense. Because if he had all this money that he claims that he has, how is he living with his parents right now? But um, I don't know. I guess I'm just wondering what I should do about it. Do I, I really think it's probably not the best idea to confront him because he is a psycho. He was pretty physically and emotionally abusive. I know I don't want to talk to him, but what do I do about it? If you were out there telling credible lies, insidious lies, you might have to confront him or get out in front of those lies and proactively run around disabusing people of the bullshit that he was peddling. But he's telling incredible lies. He's not telling credible lies. He's telling lies that nobody puts any stock in. And he's outing himself as the crazy person in the relationship and making himself look ridiculous and kind of sending up a flare and letting everyone that he speaks to know that they should not think about dating him themselves because – He's the kind of person who in a relationship ends, runs around smearing and disparaging their ex, which is always a bad move. You know, there's sometimes for accountability when you have to go out there and tell the truth about your ex. If your ex was abusive, physically abusive, uh, emotionally abusive, yeah, your friendship network kind of needs to know. Like if there was somebody on the edge of your friendship network or even a close friend who thought they might want to date this person or runs into this person a year or two later and thinks about dating this person – you would want your friend to know and and it would be a friendly thing to do to let people know that, yeah, they were really bad news in these specific ways, not to blacken their name, but to protect your friends from ending up in a relationship with this person themselves later. But if a relationship ended because it needed to end, the person who runs around smearing the other person looks terrible and looks undateable, looks like a risk in dating because most relationships do end. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end until one doesn't. We're in a lot more relationships that end than relationships that go and go and go indefinitely. And how people behave themselves after a relationship is one of the ways that people let you know whether there's someone you want to be in a relationship with. 
And this guy's letting everyone know that no one in their right mind would want to be in a relationship with him. He's only, in this case, your ex is only damaging himself and his future prospects because the lies he's telling are transparent and not credible. And they're making him look terrible. So let him keep digging the hole that he's digging and you keep doing what you've been doing. Maintain a dignified silence in regards to your ex and your relationship, except with people who need to know, your support network, your friendship network, the people you need to rely on, the people that you share your life experiences with so that they can understand you and be there for you just as they share theirs with you so you can understand them and be there for them. Otherwise, keep doing what you're doing, which is nothing. Quiet. Hi, Dan. I have um, a kind of unique question um, unfortunately, my family and I, uh, we just had our house broken into. And as upsetting it is, as it is with, um, you know, the violation of your space and all of that. In addition, they went through my bedside table. And I know that because they stole something out of my bedside table. So since then, because of just feeling generally unsafe in my space, um, and feeling like they've touched some very intimate objects that, you know, based on your recommendations, I paid a lot of money for, so I don't want to throw them away. I just, I don't know how to get over this, this total, uh, for lack of a better term, um, kind of boner killer. I feel kind of distant from my wonderful partner who is totally supportive and awesome. Um, he's, been great through this whole process. However, it would be nice to connect with him physically. And I just, I can't kind of get there after someone has been in our space and especially invaded something so intimate. So if you have any suggestions, I would sure appreciate it. Your house just got broken into. You are still reeling. I have friends whose house was robbed while they were home upstairs in bed asleep and the whole first floor was ransacked while everyone was asleep and they were really traumatized by this you know there were people in their space and they felt sort of distanced and alienated in their own space and it took some time living in their space for it to feel like it was a safe place again and their space again so this just happened it's going to take a little bit if this just happened and the next morning you weren't up for your regular bout of morning sex if you're one of those weirdo perverts who likes to have sex in the morning i don't understand those people but whatever if the very next morning you weren't up for it that's not a surprise it's going to take a little time living and moving through your space for it to feel like your space again that said on some level, at some point, you got to fake it till you make it. You got to actively lean in, as Cheryl What's-Her-Face might say, and reclaim your space and reclaim your boner and reclaim your pussy and reclaim the sex toys they left behind. If they're the kind that can be run through a dishwasher, if it's that kind of high-end silicone or stainless steel sex toy collection that you've gotten together on my recommendation, run that shit through the dishwasher so that you have wiped away any of their whatever, fingerprints, wuju, whatever, scrubbed away, scrubbed off. If you have some cheaper sex toys that can't be effectively cleaned, maybe now's the time to get rid of those. Go out with your partner, buy a brand new putting it behind us sex toy that you can bring into your space that no one has touched, no one has fucked with and use it. And maybe don't use it in your bedroom. Use it in some other room in the house. If there's a room in the house that they didn't take anything from or they didn't get into, 
go fuck there. And then gradually let the fuck spread through the rest of the house as you move out of that space and into other spaces and take back your place, take back your boner, take back your pussy, take back your sex toys. They took whatever it is that they took from you. They took your belongings and your possessions. They didn't take your inner life. They didn't take your erotics. They didn't take your fantasies and your imagination. They didn't take your partner. They didn't take your pussy. Don't let them take all of those things. Defy them. Defy the violation. Push back against it. Reclaim your space, but be compassionate and indulgent with yourself. This just happened. Take a couple of days. Take a week to grieve it, to mourn it, and then fake it till you make it. Lean in. Get on it. Do it. Go buy that new sex toy. Go run the rest through the dishwasher and start fucking taking your space and your boners back. Hey there, guys. Uh, Mid-20s female on the East Coast here. Just wondering about relationship timelines, I guess. I just started a new relationship uh, maybe like a couple months ago with this guy. He lives uh, about four hours away from me. Um, and it's been really, really good, like super way better than anything I've really experienced. Like it's been just really positive and we're very encouraging of each other. And the love is just, it's just something else. It's something crazy. And I realize that we've only been seeing each other for several months and I've only visited him, uh, visited him like maybe four or five times. Um, but we talk every day and I don't know, it just feels, it feels really strong and like, I, I realize that like I really want to have him in my future, um, and so I'm trying to think about, oh, should I move over there? Like, should he move here? Um, which is kind of complicated because like he's divorced and has kids, um, and so it's easier if I moved over there. But basically, like I'm thinking about all this life stuff, but I'm also thinking about like I know this is kind of NRE. I'm trying to figure out like. <sighs> what's the difference between like MR NRE and like knowing that you're really in love and like, like how soon is it to decide like when you want to spend your life with someone basically? Cause I hear definitely uh, saying like, Oh, people have only been together for five months and then, you know, they're in relationship counseling and all this stuff. Like that's so early, but I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to figure out like, what's a good time. Like how long does it take for you to know that somebody is right for you? And like when you should kind of make, crazy decisions based on that you know like how long does nre really last for um and is it like really stupid just to be like fuck it and go nre for those of you who aren't familiar with the abbreviation is new relationship energy it's a term popularized by the poly community to describe watching your long-term partner kind of fall in love with and be posaded with someone and experience this kind of rush of endorphins and oxycontocins or whatever the fuck they're called and the, these powerful overwhelming emotions the infatuation stage nre new relationship energy bad idea generally to make plans to marry or move when you're still in the throes of nre because it can blind you to the person's faults or you just don't know enough about the person you haven't been dating them long enough you really have to be out of the nre stage before you make choices around moving in together getting married, spending your life together. Of course, you're going to feel at the NRE stage with someone you're really, really crushing on. You're going to hope and wish with all of your parts that this person is everything that the NRE drunkenness is convincing you they might be. But it takes time for them to reveal themselves to you and either disqualify themselves 
and prove that they're not someone you can spend your life with or to qualify themselves and prove to you that they are someone you can spend your life with. It takes time. All right. What should you do in your particular circumstance? Now, embracing the fact that my sample is hopelessly skewed because people who everything is going great for don't write to me or call me. I get a lot of letters and I get a lot of calls from people who are in long distance relationships that were working where they saw each other once in a while and the sex was tremendous and it was great and they moved and it all fell apart. There was something about the long distance element of the relationship that wasn't harming it, but that was making it possible. That wasn't impeding its function, but was the reason it was working so well. And then those people move in together and it all comes to shit. That said, again, my sample is skewed. People who moved across the country to be with somebody they met on the internet and they were in an LDR with for a while and it all went great. They're not going to write me and say, hey, this went great. Just thought you should know, Dan, keeping you abreast of everything out here in the world that's working. Acknowledging my sample is skewed. But if you move there or if he moves to you, don't move in. Each of you have your own space. You are not living together. You are moving closer together so that you can continue to date. And you need to be independent and you need to not put on this brand new relationship in the NRE stage the pressures of a premature commitment. So go. If you want to go and explore the possibilities here, go. Get your own apartment in the town where he lives. Be independent. See if you could have a life there if the relationship goes south. Is it a place that you want to live? And see if you can have a life there with or without him. And then it's a free choice on your part to stay in the relationship or leave the relationship. Once the NRE thing runs out and you're really seeing who he is and you're not blinded by all the endorphins and oxy to whatevers. Likewise, he'll be really seeing you a few months in or a year in. And then if things are still great and if it's a good and functioning and healthy relationship and you've had your fights and you guys can process conflict in a productive, constructive way – and you know what his farts smell like and he knows what your farts smell like and you're well out of the NRE stage and you want to move in together, then you move in together. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something-year-old female living in the Northwest. I'm getting married next year and we started sending out invitations. We have two friends. Um, they're a couple. And we're deciding if we want to rescind the invitation at this point. They continually get drunk like six or seven times a week and they get aggressive, belligerent, racist at times. And recently the girl used her name as to refer to her vagina. And the more we continue going back and forth on this issue, the more it's a concern of not if they're going to drink, it's just how drunk they're going to get and what's going to end up happening. They're becoming, you know, essentially a bomb at this <laughs> wedding. Should we, like, rescind the invitation, for lack of a better word, to avoid this issue? Because I feel like putting them in this situation is just going to give them a reason to get drunk and fuel their alcoholism or is it going to by giving back the invitation they're going to actually realize that you know our problem is affecting our friends and affecting our friendships and maybe we should rethink this really this is you're having a hard time making up your mind 
because you don't know what to do about the drunk racist. You've invited to your wedding. People get drunk and belligerent seven nights a week and are racist and you're on the fence. But disinvite them and tell them why you're disinviting them. Say, look, you two have a drinking problem. And the idea of having you at our reception where alcohol will be served and you guys can't be trusted to consume alcohol responsibly, we just don't want to have to think about it. We don't want to be waiting for the fuse to be lit and the bomb to go off and for you guys start throwing the N-word around and calling your vagina by your name, which I don't know why that's a problem necessarily, but you cited it as a problem and so it's a problem. Just disinvite them. They need to know why they're disinvited. And I would like to know why they're your friends in the first place. If they're drunk seven nights a week and belligerent racists, how did they get the invitation initially? They should have been scratched off your list long ago. And there's still time to scratch them off the list. And you don't want on your stressful, most wonderful day of your life, the worry about the racist, just add alcohol assholes exploding in your faces and in the faces of your guests. So tell them it's off. Tell them they're not invited. Tell them why. And let them know they need to get help and get off the sauce because the boozing and the hating and the vagina name calling, all of that is going to start costing them more dearly than just wedding invitations. It's going to cost them jobs and friendships and family. They're going to hit rock bottom. And maybe this little flare you're going to send up will help them avoid that fate. Maybe they will go get help now and one day thank you, even if initially they blow up at you in a drunken rage. Hi, Dan. I have a question. I'm talking with my girlfriend. This has come up before. I say, dude, <clears throat> when I'm talking to her, like particularly sometimes in intimate situations, I'll say, man or dude, and it's just something that I mean as like an endearing term because I'm comfortable saying it. But she kind of gets angry at me sometimes, and I get it. We talked about it. I just want to know if there's a better word. I don't know if you can throw it out there online or ask the at-risk youth, um, particularly like, dude, what encapsulates that same thing when you're just talking and you're just, you know, yeah, dude, you know what I'm saying, blah, blah, I hear you, dude, you know, but it's intimate and you want to express that, but also appreciate uh, the feminine and that they're a woman um, and be empowering. I looked online, I can't find anything. Also, same thing, but it, it, it's sort of a negative thing, but like the word pussy, like, oh, that guy's such a fucking pussy or she's such a pussy, you know, and it's like has this connotation of being weak and subservient or just, you know, pathetic, whereas like pussy should be beautiful and appreciated and empowering, you know, and I wonder if there's another word, I guess, you know, we don't want a word to put people down, but if there's another word that is pussy, but isn't, I liken it to like when I was a kid and people would say, oh, you're so gay, you're gay. And then it was like, and they were like, oh, I don't mean homosexual. I mean, they're lame or, or weak. And it's like, no, don't use that word because it connotes the stuff and all that stuff. So don't use gay in that term. Don't use pussy in that way. And maybe don't use dude in that way. I don't know if you could throw it out there, have a discussion about that. Um, I'd be much obliged. Dude. So you don't mind when people call you dude. I like it. This is Nancy Hartunian, producer of the Savage Lovecast. Why do you like being called dude? Uh, because it's like I'm sort of being welcomed into that kind of like a little bit more masculine kind of macho-y culture. Like one of the guys. I'm one of the guys. And I like calling other women dude, too. It's fun. On Broad City... Abby and Alana call each other dude all the time. Yeah, and it's totally charming. It is really charming. But it <clears throat> yeah. bothers his girlfriend to be called dude. Yeah, why? I get why it would bother her. Because it makes her one of the crowd. You don't call your romantic partner dude. 
Do you? Sometimes. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, really? Yeah, dude, sure, dude, yeah. you would do that? Yeah. See, that yeah, would drive me crazy. That. Terry calls me babe every once in a while, and I object strenuously because it's the sort of thing you call like someone that you like is very crowded, like a, a stranger almost. Hey, babe, like I'm not your fucking babe, I'm your goddamn husband. Like, <laughs> have a pet name that's specific to me, and you can call me that. Call me honey, call me, and don't call me babe. And I sort of understand where his girlfriend is coming from. If he calls everybody dude and calls her dude too, it kind of. Knocks her off the like my one and only, my special person, my lover, my girlfriend perch down to like one of the crowd, one of the boys. But aren't there instances when a man and his girlfriend are in that kind of zone where, you know, you're both dudes? Or is or if it's like in bed and it's like, you know, sexy times, I guess I could see where that would it, quite work. It but, bothers her. How yeah. hard would it be for him to remember to use her name? Right. Okay. Fine. Or a specific pet name. Right. It, he can acquiesce to that for her because she's made it clear. But just, I thought we were going to discuss the, the the theory of using. Dude. Well, that there are some women in the world who don't mind being called dude and call other women dude because because you want to be one of the guys. Yeah. Because it's you're fun. a misogynist on some level, and you'd rather be a man. I hate women. <laughs> Just kidding. That is the impression I get week after week after week sitting across the table from you. No, it is not. That is not the impression at all. Nancy is always sticking up for the broads. Yeah, no, I just, I I like want to, I want to take it. You know, we get to be in charge of the language, right? We we just take it and make it our own. And that whole like, you know, hanging out and being tough and talking about each other and using dude, it just, it's just fun. It's it's like not like so delicate. It's not so... um, Precious. Maybe dude means men and men only in the same way that doctor used to mean men and men only because women weren't doctors because they weren't allowed to be doctors. Maybe women aren't thought of when you use dude because women weren't allowed to be that kind of rough and tumble dude. And in our culture now, women can be dudes too. So maybe dude isn't gendered just like doctor was gendered because of discrimination isn't gendered anymore. Maybe we can de-gender dude. Nice. Nice metaphor there. Thank you. Nice pivot. Now, problematically shifting to pussy. Oh, geez. All this time, Nancy has been (laughs) dutifully recording me and editing me and pushing out podcasts where I importune people not to use pussy to mean weak because pussies are powerful. They chew up cum and they spit out humans and they take a pounding. Pussies are strong. Pussies like spit human beings into the world. Like there is no human beings without pussy and pussies to, to, to make that human being, they got to get like pounded with dick and pussies like being pounded with dick. Whereas balls, the slightest tap, like we say, Oh, he's got balls. It's like, yeah, the slightest tap on someone's balls and he is on the ground. Balls are weak and exposed and vulnerable and pussies are internal and strong and powerful. And yet would you like to come out now as, what I've just discovered you to be a pussy thought criminal. Listen, if you're in the car ahead of me and you're like, it's a four way stop sign and it's your turn to go and you don't go, I'm going to call you pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that it's wrong, but it's just, it's like so emotional. It just works. It just feels right. And I'm really sorry. I'm apologizing to everybody. I know I shouldn't do it and I'll never do it again, but it feels really good to call somebody a pussy. Sometimes. Have you ever called another driver pussy while your daughters were in the backseat of your car? Uh, no comment. Yes. <laughs> wait till Jezebel gets a hold of this tape. Wait till wait till my husband hears this. I'm going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> All right. So I would say to the caller, please stop using pussy to mean weak because I think it spills over into the idea that women are weak 
and that women are vulnerable and that it just like classes, you know, it reduces women to the genitals and says women are weak and, and, and that there's no power there. And it just like says to someone powerless or, or, or without power or, or less than or not as powerful as because labia, vulva, vagina. And I, I have a, and it's like a faggot. I have a problem with that. What if you're alone in your car, though? Well, then then it's fine. Just make sure your phone is off and Siri didn't like sneak into the backseat of the car with you. I mean, we can all say whatever we want to when we're alone in our cars. Yeah. So circling back to the caller, even though you like dude, even though you like to use pussy, he shouldn't call his girlfriend dude because she doesn't like it. How hard is that to remember? Yeah. You remembered it long enough to get on the phone and call me and leave a message. You should be able to remember it in the moment and not call your girlfriend dude. Call her by her name. Call her honey. Call her sweetie. Don't call her babe because I hate that. I don't want anyone to use that. And uh, instead of pussy, he wanted an alternate to pussy for a week. And I think scrote. Yeah, scrote's great. If We, we just got to spread it far and wide until it really feels right. Scrote. Don't scrote. be such a scrote. Oh, what a scrote. Right. Because balls, unfortunately, mean strong. Like, got balls. It's going to take a long time to dismantle that idea that got balls strong. So scrote. Because when people say balls, they think of, like, the balls. When you say scrote, it's that, like, weird, wrinkly bag of hairy flesh that's a Thank thin. You. Thank th- you very much. You're welcome. Uh, and, and so, scrote. I think scrote means weak and vulnerable. That uh, weird, rise and fallen bag of nuts on the outside of your body that anybody can reduce you to a quivering pile on the floor just by tapping. Don't be such a scrote. I have a new New Year's resolution. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Irish Youth. I'm a 30-year-old bi woman with a really great bi husband. We've been together for six years and married for one, and we have a really great relationship. We trust each other completely, and we're very open with each other in in life and sexually, and it's great. Um, And one of the things we discovered about a year into our relationship is that we both share a kind of weird kink. I always fantasized about someone sort of like using me while I'm unconscious while he's fantasized about doing that to someone. Um, he, when he first told me about this, he was really reluctant and told me, you know, he'd never acted on this. And he, you know, reassured me that, um, you know, he, he didn't want to take advantage of anyone who couldn't consent. So he'd never done it. But, um, one of his exes would pretend for him and, and kind of help him meet that desire. Um, I was into this too. So we did that for a while. Um, and four years into our relationship, I approached him with the idea of, me taking sleeping pills and him having sex with me while I was mostly unconscious. Um, He knows all my boundaries and knows what I would and wouldn't be okay with. And it went really great. Uh, He even made a video and we watched it later together. It was really hot. Uh, We don't do this often. We've done it like a handful of times in the last couple of years. Um, And it's always been with my pre-drugged consent. And he's always stuck exactly to what we agreed on beforehand. So here's my question. I have told only one person about this kink, my best friend. Um, She was horrified and basically called him a rapist and said she can't even be around him now and thinks I'm being abused. And I've denied this and explained to her that everything is fine and she's not hearing it. Um, I wish I'd never admitted this to her, but now her reaction is making me wonder if there's something weird or unnatural about what we're doing. Um, my husband and both and I both enjoy it, so shouldn't that make it fine? I wouldn't never do this with someone I didn't know well and trust for years, and I've never done this with anyone else before. And I fully consent to everything up until the point where I can't. So am I fucked up for allowing this? 
Um, I would never suggest anyone has unfettered access to their spouse's unconscious body as a general rule. But if it's fully consensual beforehand, is that really that horrible? I don't know. I feel weirdly ashamed in a way I never have before now, and that really pisses me off. Is it a terrible idea to pre-consent to something? What do I do? Is it a terrible idea to pre-consent to something? Well, let's set aside for a moment the old sleeping pills and unconsciousness aspect of the question. Just talk about that. In an LTR, you've been with your husband for a very long time. I've been with my husband for a very long time. And in a sense, we exist, our relationship exists in a state of pre-consent. We have pre-consented to things that if we didn't know each other or didn't know each other well or were strangers to each other, we wouldn't be consenting to. For instance, Terry is in bed, ass up. I can climb on top of him and initiate sexual contact. And if he isn't into it at that moment, it's, he's not feeling it, it's not the right time, he can tell me to stop. And of course I stop. But he's withdrawn his consent. Not I had to obtain it to initiate, but if I initiate it and he's not into it, he can withdraw it. And I totally respect that. But if I walked up to some stranger at the gym who's on a weight bench face down and did to him exactly what I did to Terry, didn't ask, climbed on top, initiated contact, it would be sexual assault. And I would hopefully get arrested, even though I did the exact same thing, but not in the context of a healthy functional LTR. In my healthy functional LTR, consent is a given and then it can be withdrawn. And sounds like it's the same thing in your LTR, that you trust and love your husband and are familiar enough with your husband that you exist in a state of pre-consent to some things. What gets dicey about this and what freaked out your friend was you consenting to sexual activity when you're unconscious. And when you're unconscious, you aren't capable of doing what Terry might do if he's not feeling it in the moment when I climb on top of him, which is you're not capable of withdrawing your consent. But you trust your husband and you guys have had a conversation and a discussion before you are unconscious about the things that will happen while you are unconscious. And there's a video that you are able to watch later and you can after the fact, which is itself a little dicey, determine that he only did the things that you two agreed to in advance. And yeah, that's a real gray area and that's going to be upsetting for some. But if it works for you, it is your business and no one else's. So you say you've only told one person about this. You obviously told the wrong person about this. So how do you handle this friend? Well, don't be a scrote. What you're doing is, by your own estimation, consensual and safe. And I think an objective person who's not a sex panic, kink phobic nut would look at what you're doing and say, well, this is a fantasy that under most circumstances couldn't be explored or realized, but you have found someone with whom you can safely realize and explore this in reality, not just through fantasy. And that's a beautiful thing. And you two are lucky, lucky to have found each other. And in past relationships, you two explored this. And in past relationships, you both explored this in an, an intensely responsible fashion. And then you lucked into a relationship where you can explore it in actuality, that you can realize the fantasy in all of its aspects because you found the right person. You found the one in a million or one in 10 million or one in a hundred million person that you can actually do this thing that you fantasize about with and do it safely. So what you say to your friend is fuck off. You don't understand what we're doing is actually safe. It's actually consensual. And here are all the safeguards in place. Here's the videotape and, and fuck off and stop judging us. 
for doing together that which we both enjoy and that brought us closer together and cements our bond and makes our sex life awesome every once in a while on the occasions that we do this. So stand up to your friend. Don't be a scrot. Don't be weak and vulnerable. Don't be shamed. Don't let her judgment burrow its way into your brain and spoil this thing that you and your husband do together and enjoy together and enjoy safely together. It was the algorithm or the paper about it that launched a million panicky headlines. And the panic was justified in a world where gay men are being rounded up, tortured and murdered in Chechnya. Egypt is arresting gay men in the process also of criminalizing homosexuality. Gay men are regularly executed in Iran and Saudi Arabia, beaten in Indonesia, hacked to death in the streets of Bangladesh. And closer to home, LGBT teens are regularly thrown out of their homes by bigoted parents. And in one deeply distressing case moving through the courts now, an eight-year-old boy was tortured for years and ultimately murdered by the boy's mother's boyfriend because mom's boyfriend suspected the little boy of being gay. The headlines about this algorithm or this paper or this announcement, new AI, new artificial intelligence, can work out whether you're gay or straight from a photograph, read the headline at The Guardian. Stanford researchers use facial recognition tools to predict sexual orientation, read the headline at The Washington Post. Here to talk about this, Blaise Aguera Iacas, official title, distinguished scientist at Google. He works on AI for Google Artificial Intelligence. Wait, first, that's a new title. You didn't used to be a distinguished scientist. You were a mediocre, run-of-the-mill, average. Yeah, yeah I was just principal last time, but now I'm distinguished, you were apparently. principal scientist working on AI at Google? Apparently, distinguished is better than principal. Wow, who knew? <laughs> who knew? I don't have the Google scientist flowcharts in front of me, but congratulations on the upgrade. Thank you. And this study, you have a paper coming out, you're the co-author of a paper, taking on this study. What was your reaction when this study was announced? Gay world kind of panicked, glad panicked, HRC panicked, because we do live in a world where if there was a way to just pick people, you know, take one photograph of someone and know that they were gay, that that wouldn't hurt me because I'm gay and out and safe, but there are a lot of people out there in the world that that could be a risky proposition for. True. So, uh, so yeah, my co-authors and I, uh, Margaret Mitchell, who is, is in my group at Google and also works on AI and uh, language and fairness. Uh, and uh, and Alex Todorov, who's uh, on the on the psych faculty at Princeton and works on social perception of faces, we've been sort of obsessed for a while with uh, this uh, this thing called physiognomy, which is uh, the idea, and it goes back to the 19th century, if not to the 9th century or the negative 9th century. And the Nazis were fans. Then the Nazis were fans that uh, that you can tell you know deep things about a person by studying the measurements of their face. The length of their chin, the length of their nose, the space between their eyes, the shape of their skull. Exactly. The Nazis were obsessed with this. Exactly. And reading the study that set off this firestorm in the media about being able to spot people based on their uh, just a simple photograph, whether they're gay or straight, they were citing length of nose, shape of chin, eyebrow configuration. They were citing what they believed to be physiological traits that were specific and kind of genetically coded for homosexuality. That's right. And that was part of what made everybody freak the fuck out. Because if you can tell from bone structure and from a, one photograph whether someone's gay, again, not going to hurt me, but potentially could hurt a lot of other people, particularly in parts of the world where you're not allowed to be gay. That's right. So there's there's a whole sort of potpourri of different issues that the, that the paper raises. And you, you've talked about, uh, about privacy, mm -hmm. and we definitely need to get to that. But um, but the first thing that that caught our eye was actually the essentialism problem. In other words, you know, the idea that that you know the paper is saying that not only can this be determined from a face image, but that it's about features of the, you know the bone structure of the face and, and things like this. And and 
that connects with some old and pretty thoroughly discredited ideas about um, uh, gay men being feminized by different levels of hormones in the womb and, and uh, you know, lesbian women being masculinized, uh, you know, this is the, the gender inversion theory, so-called, mm-hmm. from the 19th century by, you know, other levels of hormones in the womb. And, and yeah, when, when, we, when we read the, the paper and did a little bit of follow-up study, we, uh, our conclusion is, is, that, is that that's bullshit, that, that this doesn't provide any support that kind of essentialism argument. And I can explain a little bit about why. Yeah, please tell us why this study is bullshit. Yes, <laughs> sure. Well, the first, the first thing you should know is that the, the pictures that they trained their neural net on were all selfies from either a dating website uh, where you know, people on the dating website, of course, are saying on their profile page, are they gay or straight? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and then pictures from out gay or straight people uh, on, on Facebook, on their, on their, their uh their profile page. So these weren't standardized photos. These weren't passport photos. They were right. the way people were self-presenting online. Exactly. And often, and when you self-present online, particularly on a dating site, you're trying to communicate something about your sexual orientation to people. Right. Right. Whenever we go out, uh, you know, we're always presenting in some way. We're, we're communicating all sorts of things socially. Baboons stick their big red butts in the air. They do. We stick our big red faces in the air when we go we on our dating selfies websites. selfies at particular angles and it's the equivalent of the baboon butt in the air. Exactly. Exactly. So, so question number one is, you know, what's being measured? Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's some really telling uh, kind of average faces in the in the paper, which were sort of the, the giveaway. Um, so the, what what Kosinski and his and his co-author did. Oh, we should probably cite the authors of this study that caused all the panic and yes. the name of it and where people can read it if they yes, want to find apologies. it. Yes, apologies. So it's it's Michal Kosinski at Stanford and Yulin Wang, his a student. And the paper is deep neural networks are more accurate than humans at detecting sexual orientation from facial images. So, uh, you know, it also raises yet another kind of um, bugbear, another issue, which is this whole business of, of superhuman AIs. And, uh, and, and we need to get into that one as well. And this was Stanford researchers, the very credible uh, institution right. and a major peer-reviewed journal that published this. It wasn't Joe's University of Greater Boise and, uh, you know, the bullshit zine journal exactly and and that was that was the thing that really shocked us because you know my my co-authors and i published uh, an, an essay on on medium a number of months ago about uh, that was you know in part responding to a paper by a couple of chinese researchers about predicting uh criminality uh, as they called it from uh, from facial uh, photos and that was a pretty fucked up study but it also um wasn't peer-reviewed and you know it was just put online and and you know at the time it seemed like a very fringe thing but like a lot of fringe things, uh, you know, or things that used to feel very fringy. This, this the looks internet like it's gone grabbed mainstream. it and blew it up. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and it's gone now. It's it's become sort of normalized uh, or accepted in uh, you know enough that that a major academic publication uh, accepted this and that a professor at Stanford is is writing about. It. So that that's that's interesting to us as well. Um, but anyway, to to get back to the question of like you know what you see, what 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 are the sort of signs of the bullshit in, mm-hmm. in the paper? Uh, when you look at those um, average pictures of uh, gay men, straight men, uh, gay women, straight women, and the way these averages are put together is by taking all of the all of the uh, the say gay gay man pictures and aligning them on the pupils and uh, and then summing up all of those pictures, so you get a kind of ghost image of the, you know the average gay man, mm-hmm. and um, and you see some really interesting stuff like uh, the gay man is wearing glasses. Like you can see the sort of shadow of glasses on his face and the straight man is not. And the straight man is, you know, has a big bushy beard and, and the gay man has no beard or a little bit of fuzz. Um, the straight woman has eyeshadow. Um, the lesbian doesn't. Um, and so, you know, you look at all of those things and the you know, first question is, you know, could, could it be picking up on those kind of cues? Um, 
which are about culture. Yeah, yeah. I and, mean, and, and subcultures. And, and again, baboon butts in the air. Exactly. The gay men often like to wear glasses because it's another way of like styling it up a little bit. The gay men like glasses because you, they, you know, they allow for a little bit more self-expression. Also, glasses for some gay men is a way of signaling to other gay men that you're gay. Like straight guys don't wear fashiony, bold, flashy specs. That's right. Either you're gay, gay or, you're, or you're an urban hipster. Um, right. You're an architect. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and by a series of, of signs like that, you, know, you're, you, are, you are presenting. And we, we tested that hypothesis, actually, by running uh, a survey of, uh, of a couple of thousand um, uh, American uh, subjects. And we, we used Mechanical Turk, which is a, a kind of online survey platform for doing mm. this, and asked, um, asked people questions like, you know, are you are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you attracted to men? Are you attracted to women? Do you wear glasses? Do you like how you look in glasses? And uh, and you you see really interesting results. That not unexpected. Uh, gay men definitely you know wear glasses more often than straight men do. It's a, I it's know a gay pretty men big difference. Who don't need glasses and still who wear, wear glasses <laughs> exactly. And and straight men who do and uh, who do need them and don't wear them. Uh, right. And obviously, it's not a it's not a. Um, it's not a rule. It's just a statistical bias right? mm-hmm. that you're more likely. Uh, so and now about the eyeshadow issue and, yeah, and yeah. lesbians, because the study, uh, the original one that we're declaring bullshit here today, uh, it didn't look at bisexuality, didn't try right. to class out. It just looked at gays and lesbians, like right. gay men and lesbian women. Right. And one of the things that they found was like, you know, straight women's eyes and lesbians' eyes are different. What they found was the difference seems to be that. Women, straight women are likelier to wear eyeshadow. Oh, news at 11, stop the presses, <laughs> exactly. likelier to wear eyeshadow than lesbians. Exactly. And, and News at 11, our survey confirmed that, you know, much, much more likely. And actually, when, when uh, we put together the survey, we did, we asked uh, kind of all of the questions, uh, you know, are, do you consider yourself lesbian? Uh, you know, do you, are, are you romantically attracted to men? Are you romantically attracted to women, sexually attracted to men, sexually attracted to women? So we asked all of those things. And you can see in the case of the eyeshadow, these really beautiful uh, sort of spectrum of differences. If you're if you're um, uh, straight uh, and unambiguously so, and not attracted romantically or sexually to the same to the same sex, uh, and you're a woman, then um, you're most likely to wear eyeshadow. If you uh, say that you are attracted uh, either romantically or sexually to, to women, then you're considerably less likely. And if you identify as lesbian, then less likely still. And you see this you know this beautiful kind of spread of probabilities across all ages. So it would seem that the, the study, you know, he said he, we have this algorithm, kind of an off-the-shelf algorithm in my reading of uh, the right. reports about it. It's not like they invented some new program. They just ran photos of programs that already existed. Right. And they said, we have determined that we can, using these programs, tell if you're gay or lesbian, when in actual fact, these were gays and lesbians already telling you they were gays and lesbians. That's right. That's right. And they were telling you on the profile page, and they're also telling you in their selfie. And, and there's a really funny kind of uh, just, uh, you know, way of, of, of demonstrating that, which is they, they use a, a measure called area under the curve to talk about how good their algorithm is. Mm-hmm. And it's a little complicated, but what it boils down to is if I were to show you two pictures, uh, one of which is of a straight woman and one is a, of a lesbian, and you had to guess which is which, area under the curve is the probability that you'd get it right. So if it's a coin flip, if you have no information, then, you know, it's 50%. And they say that their algorithm for um, recognizing whether a woman is lesbian is, uh, has a 71% area under the curve. It gets it right 71% of the time, so a lot better than chance. But it turns out that if you were to use the following algorithm, so, um, you know, I have two women in front of me. I just ask, 
do you wear uh, eyeshadow? And uh, if they both wear eyeshadow, I flip a coin. If neither wears eyeshadow, I flip a coin. And if one of them wears eyeshadow, she's the straight one. That algorithm already has like a 63% area under the curve. And if you add makeup on top of eyeshadow, then it gets to 68%. So you're getting really close to their 71% by asking two questions. Do you wear makeup and do you wear eyeshadow? Can you talk about social signaling a little bit? We joke in Gayland about gaydar. Like, I can right. tell, I can tell. Um, and when you challenge people on that, and I like to joke about gaydar too, because I can tell, but I usually, we usually can tell when someone's trying to tell us. Right. We can tell who's gay because they're signaling to right. us that they're gay. There's social signaling. And, and, and in-group identity signifiers that people adopt, gay and straight, adopt to like let people know who they are. Right. You know, I think of all the straight guys that I grew up around in Chicago uh, with their ham sandwiches in their hands and their Bears jerseys exactly. walking around. And you just don't see – if somebody, if a guy is wearing a Bears jersey, odds are really good in my neighborhood where I grew up in Chicago that that is not a homosexual right. coming toward me. Right, right. exactly. Uh, if a guy is wearing – in the early 80s when I was surrounded by guys in Bears jerseys, uh, you know, a pink sweater knotted over his shoulders. Yeah, probably a homo like me. Like, <laughs> probably exactly. coming at me for a reason I might like as opposed to the guys in the Bears jersey coming at me for a reason I might not like. Exactly. exactly. So gaydar's not a thing. No. Well, I mean, it's, it's a thing in that we make it a thing by, by signaling and by being the recipients of those signals. And, uh, and, it's, and it's cultural, as you say. So a lot of these things change over time. Uh, and you actually see very, some really funny evidence of that change over time in, in our little uh, kind of still unpublished uh, Mechanical Turk study. We, when, uh, you know, I wanted to look at, at beards and, you know, is, is, is uh, our beards, you know, less of a thing for, you know, for gay men than for straight men? And when I, when I, first, um, when I first looked at the data, I wasn't sure because, you know, you just ask, you know, do you have a beard? You don't seem to see a difference. But I also asked, you know, do you have, uh, do, you, do you have stubble? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, that if uh, men who answer yes to stubble uh, are overwhelmingly gay. So there's like, there's a fashion, right? If you're young, that you have the, the, the short, you know, the short stubbly beard. If you have serious facial hair, you're much more likely to be straight. And um, You're straight, right? I am. You have a beard, I don't. Uh, but, I, but I live, but I live in the city, you know. So, like all all rules, all rules are off. I'm in Seattle, right? And we and we have to say also, there's been kind of a cultural shift now. There's a lot of gay men out there wearing beards. I think if you did that study in the last three weeks or last three months or six months, you might get a different it, result. It, it might shift, right? You know what? I but, think. But the, but the other the other really funny thing is that if you look at men uh, in their 40s, in their kind of early 40s, suddenly the ratio of serious facial hair among gay men spikes, which I have a feeling is is about bear culture. Speaking of bears, right? So there's so you, you even see this like these shifts in fashion as you look over different ages. One of the things I think that really scared people about this study was the, the sort of implicit message: like, there's no closet anymore. Right. That you can't hide. And you know we want people to come out. We want to create a world where nobody has to hide. In reality, there are parts of the world where you do have to hide. There are parts mm -hmm. of the world I go to where I have to hide. Mm -hmm. You know, when Terry and I drive from Seattle to Chicago to see my family. We, I think, you know, have, you know, our reptile brain kicks in a little bit and we're not blasting the gay as hard as we do when we like stroll up 15th Avenue on Capitol Hill in Seattle because right. we don't want to die in a truck stop in Nebraska. Right. Certain blocks you hold your hands, certain blocks not. Right. And, and so what was scary about the study was there's no closet. Like just mm -hmm. a picture of you, someone with the software that's off the shelf can mm -hmm. say you're gay or straight. And right. in reality, you know, Glasses, facial hair, eyeshadow. There's a lot of ways to let people know by adopting or not adopting these things that you're gay or straight. 
And so there is still a closet. Right. That, that you are still safe if you're in a part of the world or in a place in time or a place in your life where you can't be out. This doesn't exist. There isn't a software that can out you because what this study, the original study that your new paper debunks found is that people who are telling you they're gay are telling you they're gay. And the people who are telling you are gay or lesbian are actually, big surprise, gay or lesbian. That's right. So the, the, the software is not superhuman. It's not, it's not sort of some x-ray vision that's, that's finding you know, tr- hidden traces of some inner gay. It's, uh, it looks like it's, it's picking up on very simple and obvious things like do you have a beard and are you wearing glasses and are you shooting your selfie from slightly below so you look like a, you have a big chin. or That's an important above. point because they claim that they found physiological differences, measurable right. physiological differences. That's right. And your new paper with Alexander Todorov and Margaret Mitchell argues and persuasively argues that that was about self-presentation again because right. women are likely to take a different angle a photograph and gay men are also likely to take different angles of photograph to emphasize different traits exactly. that might be desirable. Exactly. And that like trips into this place where like gay men do sometimes engage in sexual signaling that's a little more feminine. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they have more feminine bone structure. No. Like women will take a photo from above because it emphasizes the eyes. Gay men are likely to do the same thing because they're also trying to attract the attention or straight women will do that. Gay men will also do that for the same reason, right. trying to attack the attention of male sexual partners. Well, I can, th- I can think of at least two possible explanations for, for, for that phenomenon. And you can definitely see it. I mean, if you look at the blogs of wedding photographers or something, you know, mm-hmm. they'll write, you know, when you're shooting the bride, shoot from above. So she, you know, has big eyes and you, you de-emphasize, you know, any double chin or whatever. But, um, it's, or it's de-emphasize uh, a strong jawline because that's considered exactly, a masculine, masculine trait. Exactly. But there are angles where even somebody with not a strong jawline, you can emphasize the jawline by just totally. doing the wrong end. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I exactly. No, no, exactly. I mean, you know, so, so essentially you're, 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 uh, you're using the camera angle to make your face look a little bit different. And, and Alex and his colleagues have, sh- have shown uh, those, those kinds of effects pretty powerfully. But the, the thing is that you know, it, it, it may be about emphasizing traditionally masculine or feminine traits. It may be about uh, hierarchy. If, you are, uh, you know, if you're into hierarchy and you want to dominate, then mm-hmm. this is a way of showing dominance. It may just be about heights. Uh, and women tend to be shorter than men. And so, you know, if you're a straight man and you're, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're shooting from the perspective of the, of the woman that you want to answer, then, you know, it also, you know, it makes sense in some sense, right, to shoot mm-hmm. from below. If you're a gay man, you know, your, your mate on average is going to be of the same height as you are. So there are a lot of different ways of, you know, of, of thinking about this and they probably all interrelate in, in various ways. So in conclusion, mm-hmm. this study that came out a few months ago that freaked everybody out, Bullshit. there was now a way to, with one photograph Right. To tell, and of course, in the headlines, it was we could, we now know your sexual orientation. One photograph, but the measurements was actually you said seventy one ish percent accuracy with lesbians, but the authors claimed in the original study and eighty, I think, percent accuracy with men. So not that accurate, right? Now, those are B and C grades for accuracy, or C and D grades for accuracy, right? Um, but bullshit, and, but bullshit, and uh, and and about presentation, fundamentally about presentation, not about. Bone structure. So this algorithm um, can tell you're gay if you're telling the algorithm you're gay. Right. Now, there, there are some other questions the thing raises, like, uh, you know, do people who are closeted still somehow, you know, present in some ways? I mean, I think, you know, like we've, we've all met people that, like, we knew, right? We knew for a while before, before they were willing to come out Some of, of us closet. have married those people, Michelle Bachman. Right. <laughs> so, so I, don't, I don't think it completely eliminates, you know, this, this question of... People of, want uh, to be known. Right. And people want to signal. And in a culture where it wasn't possible to be out, even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago in the United States, in a culture where it wasn't possible to be out anywhere, 
people in, in Victorian England, gay men, Oscar Wilde, you wore a green carnation on your lapel. Right. And only other gay people knew what that meant. And of course, as soon as straight people found out what that meant, it was over as a secret society handshake signal. Right. Um, but people do adopt signals. And, and I think sometimes closet cases, tormented closet cases, even they have this desire to be known for who they are. Even right. they have this desire to to signal to other gay men, consciously or subconsciously, I'm you too, but I'm trapped. Exactly. And that betrays itself, I think, sometimes in the adoption of exaggerated femininity, right. Martin Bachman, and uh, sometimes in just other cultural signifiers. Yes, I, I agree completely. And that that also does does suggest a place where there is a privacy issue here, which is that you know if those kind of tells or those kind of signals um, can be uh, can be learned statistically by an algorithm, then that idea that it's a secret signal that you know the only other gay men or you know only other people in in that subculture know code, the earring on the right or left exactly exactly so. You know, you you do you are able to now make uh, you know a machine that can encode all of that and and can can read those signals as well as the intended audience. So there are some there are definitely some some interesting sort of privacy implications for something like that if you marry it with mass surveillance. So you know, in that sense, I think there is a real concern here. But for me, the concern is not about superhuman uh, AI or deep learning. The concern is about mass surveillance. It works work just as well if you're taking tallies of you know, carnations or, or handkerchiefs or earrings or you know, glasses wearing. Your paper is called Do Algorithms Reveal Sexual Orientation or Just Expose Our Stereotypes? Co-authored by Alexander Todorov and Margaret Mitchell. And where is it going to be published? Uh, as yet unpublished. And uh, it, it will be out there in the world soon, but we, uh, we can't say uh, where yet. Well, I'm really glad that I got a chance to read it in advance. And I'm excited to see it out there in the world. And thank you for coming on the show and talking about it in advance. Can we hold on to you and uh, take a question that touches on privacy and, and the internet and algorithms and all this shit? Yeah, of course. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay male living out on the East Coast, and I have a question regarding social media posts within a relationship. I've been dating a wonderful guy for the past 15 months, and things could not be better. I came out to my parents and most of my friends when I was 17, and he last month uh, recently came out to his parents um, to let them know that he was moving into my place, um, but he is out to all of his friends on the East Coast here. Uh, out of respect for him and his wishes, I have limited the amount of posts on social media about us as he likes to be private about those sorts of things. I can count on one hand how many photos of us have actually made it onto social media within the past 15 months. Recently, we went on a trip to visit one of his friends, and I uploaded some photos to Facebook, and one of his friends was tagged in those photos. So he explicitly asked me not to tag him in the photos, which I did not. Um, when he found this out, he told me that he wanted me to change the privacy settings so that only my friends would be able to see these photos because his fear was that his mom would see the photos of us, and he felt like it would basically be rubbing salt within an open wound. His mother did explicitly say to him that she didn't want any of her family to find out, so his dad's reaction was a little bit better. I refused because... I felt like I have nothing to hide. I've been out for almost eight years, and he's someone that I care about, and I like I like people to see these things, and I feel like his family or parents should um, accept the fact that he's gay and that being gay is not a bad or terrible thing, and so I didn't want to change the privacy settings. I also uh, felt a little bit... 
um, salty about the situation because he never posts anything to social media about me. Nothing at all, no photos. And I have accepted this, but I feel like it's not fair for him to dictate to me how I should use social media because I am not able to tell him how he should use social media. He feels as though I'm not being as empathetic towards his situation, and he also has felt as though he's lost his agency in being able to navigate the relationship uh, with his parents and, you know, dealing with the coming out situation. So I guess my question to you is, who's wrong and how do we go about navigating social media posts within a relationship? So social media really has ruined everything for everyone, <laughs> hasn't it? Totally. All right. End of question. <laughs> Just like zooming out before we get to the specifics of this person's dilemma, mm-hmm. it, it, sometimes we have to remind ourselves, I think, uh, and some of us are old enough to remember a time when your photo album lived on a shelf in your house somewhere or in a shoebox under the bed, all your photos, and they weren't out there in the world for everyone to see. Right, for everyone's scrutiny. And, you know, even if you could have put your photo album in a public library for everybody to flip through, uh, I think the people in your photo album whose photos are also in your photo would have should have some say over whether they want to be in the public library. Yeah. And not everybody wants to live on social media. Not everybody wants their pictures publicly circulated or criticized uh, or made to go viral. Right. And so even setting aside the closet issue and that it's, you know, his concern for his mother's uh, desire to prevent anybody else in the family from ever finding out he's gay, which is complete bullshit. Uh, but, but, it's still, but it's still new and he is out, right? So it, it's, this is not a case of somebody who you know, is, is, is closeted. Although he's trying to uh, accommodate his mother's closet. Right. His mother wants to be closeted to her relatives about having a gay kid. Right. And he's trying to respect his mother's desire for, to, to live in her closet, which requires him to remain to some extent on social media closeted himself. Maybe they're in their first year. That was my feeling. That's what I wanted to right. say to the, to the caller. He's been out for one month. Mm-hmm. And I always say that I think you give your parents a year to freak out and exactly. you demonstrate to them the kind of consideration and empathy and understanding and compassion that you want them to pour all over you in your life where you just give them a year to be assholes, give them a year to ask any stupid question, give them a year where you don't bring a boyfriend by or in our new social media age, don't plaster your boyfriend all over your Facebook feed for the entire family to see right. and give them a year to have their freak out and then it's over. Then you say, yeah. all right, you had your year and now – we're shifting to I'm out and you're over it and you love and accept me as best you can or you're not going to see me very much. Right. But that still leaves the question of agency in, uh, you know, within the couple. And you know, if, you're, if you're putting up pictures of, of your partner uh, you know, for, other, for random people to see, you know, whether they have uh, choices about that. I mean, you, you and Terry, I imagine, have had this conversation in some form, right? If you look at Terry's Instagram feed, it's very different than my Instagram feed. I'm on, there's occasionally, rarely a photo of me on my Instagram feed, whereas Terry's photos are all about him. And he sometimes wants to put photos of me on his Instagram feed that I don't want to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And he gets upset. He says, I want to post this. And I say, no. But he respects my no. Mm -hmm. But my no comes from a place of not of like, oh, I'm such a private person and I don't want my mother to see me wearing that. Mm -hmm. My no comes from like, I just don't like pictures of me that much. But does does it matter where the no comes from? I mean, it seems seems to me that, you know. Well, but I think it's galling for this, you know, somebody's been out for years and years and years Mm -hmm. uh, to be told by his, you you know, to get the implicit message that on some level I'm ashamed of you. Or, or that's how it's going to feel. Like, mm-hmm. I'm ashamed of our relationship. Or the sensitivities of homophobic relatives are more important to me 
and, and protecting their feelings. These people I probably won't ever interact with again in my life. My mm-hmm. mother's relatives who hate gay people, mm-hmm. their feelings, their sensitivities, my mother's sensitivities are more important to me than you. Yeah. Than your feelings, than your desire to share our relationship on your social media networks. Well, and I, I agree that that's, that's hurtful. And, uh, and that, you know, that can't be a, a fun thing to be on the receiving end of. It's, it's also a month in, if it were, you know, a year and a month in, I think, you know, tolerance might be lower for that. But I, I also think that regardless of the reasons, uh, you know, when you, when you, um, are making social media with other people in that media, in those media, you know, in, in those pictures available to the whole world, you need uh, their consent. You need their consent, right. Right, and that's true if it's uh, strangers or friends uh, or or your your partner. Is nope. it true if it's strangers? Because a lot of people, myself included, have posted onto social media pictures that we took out in the wild. There's that, you know, if there's that out in public thing. Right? If you, yeah, the out in public thing. You can't yeah. walk up to someone's house and take a picture of them through a window yeah. and put it on social media to share it with the world. You've invaded sure. their privacy. Sure. The standard is: Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? If you're right. sitting on the bus. Uh, or you're out in public, you're moving the street. You don't have a reasonable expectation. And are you being kind? Are you being kind? If this is somebody that you care about, you know, and, and this is a picture of both of you, then I mean, my my own bias would be to to only make that public if you know both of the people in that picture. Are, the people, are especially young people, that. like this snotty mm-hmm. millennial, snot nosed millennial, they have it in their heads that the picture doesn't exist until it's shared. Right. That having the picture just for me isn't good enough because they want the likes they want the comments they want the public they they want to live this public life well they they curate they curate their image i mean uh, so in our in our kind of mechanical turk experiments you know one of the things that we've also found is that a, a huge proportion of young people have modified the privacy settings of their phone and of their social media uh so you know the the, so the narrative to be more um, or less private or public well generally modifying it means making it more private means means shutting certain things down you know mm-hmm. so so people uh you know this narrative of you know young people don't care about privacy they live in public is is not true uh you know what what is the case is that a lot of a lot of young people are going to extra work to curate uh their 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 public image in one way or another sometimes that means posting things and sometimes that means restricting who sees certain things so you know they're both they're both playing a young person's game in some sense. You know one of them one of them curating by inclusion and one of them wanting to curate by by uh, by omission. And I think the desire to curate by omission to not be so public, not be on a mm-hmm. boyfriend social media, would be more tolerable if the reason for it, if the motivation for it, were gulling. That my mom's such a bigot, and we really have to prioritize this bigot's feelings over your desire to share our relationship on your social media network. That's agreed. what's galling. Yeah, agreed. And caller, I would say, give him a year. Mm-hmm. And, and, and tell him to give his mom a year to come around that th- what's being asked of him by his mother to contort his life in such a way to warp his life in such a way that none of the extended family might ever find out that he's gay is something that families asked of their gay kids 40 years ago when they came out. All right. We love you. We accept you. You can't tell anybody else, which is not you coming out of the closet to your family. That's like two people in your family joining you in the closet right. and then barring the door and not letting you out. Right. And that's bullshit. And you can't, you can't do that. So and a year, your a year from shouldn't now, do that. A year from now, he'll have to come up with a better excuse. Like I wasn't, wearing, <laughs> I wasn't wearing my good glasses in that picture. So last time you were on the show, we were talking about sex robots. I love talking about sex robots. Before you go, in the future, when the sex robots are here and they are coming, will sex robots have their own social media accounts? And will you wind <laughs> up on the sex robot social media account? Oh man! Um, what do you do if your sex robot tags you in their Instagram photo of you? Well, I th- I think that until until the sex robots are are uh, fully self aware and have their own rights, then it it has to be it has to be your choice uh, and and has to be done with human consent.
Blaise Aguirre-Yarkas, distinguished scientist at Google and AI. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always a blast to talk to you. I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much, Dan. My pleasure. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the man in episode 578 with bipolar disorder who's trying to manage his drug and alcohol use. Um, I'm bipolar myself, and the thing I didn't hear discussed that I was waiting for was whether the caller uses prescription medication to manage his symptoms. He referred in the call to his therapist, but not specifically to a psychiatrist. Given that he referred to AA meetings and relapse, it sounds like he could be self-medicating. Classically for bipolar, bipolar people, that's an upper like cocaine or amphetamines while you're depressed and drinking alcohol when you're too manic. A prescription mood stabilizer is probably what he's actually looking for if that's the kind of thing that he's doing. He might benefit from asking his therapist for a recommendation to a psychiatrist who can help him manage prescription medication in addition to the talk therapy he's already getting with the, the counselor he presumably already trusts. If he does start prescription medication, though, it's really important that he stays sober while adjusting to the prescription. If he doesn't, it could confront his perception of whether the prescription drug is working and in the right dosage for him. It took me about a year and a half to find a dosage that works for me, and I think that's actually shorter than typical. If he wants to stay sober, though, being a psychiatrist about prescription medication might be the best thing he can do for himself. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the last episode about that 20-year-old that was smoking pot and it was laced. I, I definitely agree with what Dan said. You never know what the heck you're getting unless you are uh, getting medical marijuana or you're going to a place that, or a state that has it legal. Um, I've had a couple times that I think that I've smoked something that was laced, and it completely sucks. I don't know why people do that. But anyway, yeah, stick with Dan's advice. Make sure the pot is pot, and it's not a freaking acid trip, and don't be smoking pot while you're living with your grandparents. Hey, Dan, I'm just calling about the guy living with his grandparents in episode 578. Uh, you know, he said he's 20 years old, but you would never know it from listening to him. Uh, in the call, he mentioned that it's been two whole weeks since his weed relapsed, so he should get his privileges back. And I think he sounded like a grounded 12-year-old. So I, I fully believe that he called you expecting you to give him a pass to do what he wants and smoke all the weed he wants and all that. So I just wanted to commend you for putting on your dad hat and telling him to shut up and understand that his parents and grandparents figured out a long time ago that he can't be trusted to make decisions. So good job. Keep it up. Love the show. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Christmas. Merry Christmas. We can say that. I say that all the time. And happy holidays. The holidays are coming. If you'd like to get a gift for the Trump hater on your list, go to www.itmfa.org and get an impeach the motherfucker already. Hat, mug, t-shirt, button, lapel pin, ITMFA. And if you like my political rants at the top of the show, you'll want to subscribe to Blabbermouth, the stranger's weekly political podcast where I talk about the news with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders and Scott Nose Millennial Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for